You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. As uh, most of you would be aware, we're working our way through John's Gospel, and we're currently John 3.16, and we'll be in John 3.16 for a little while yet, because there's a lot of stuff in John 3.16 for us to understand. It's uh, rightly the most famous verse in the Bible. I don't know how many of you watch American sports on TV, but... uh, I've been a big fan of American football for many years and one of the things I've noticed at the football games is that there's often been someone sitting behind the goals at one end of the field holding up a big sign that says John 3.16. There's no verse or anything on there, there's no words, it's just the reference only, John 3.16. Whenever obviously a goal is scored, they'll hold that sign up so it's broadcast to uh, the TV watching audience right around the world um, does happen in other sports as well um, and I suspect that everybody knows what John 3.16 or at least all Christians would know what John 3.16 says and uh, although I'm not entirely sure that's the case anymore we live in fairly biblically illiterate times and I suspect that uh, even if many Christians know what it says, they don't really know what it means. There's probably a lot of people that don't know what it says anymore. And now that I think about it, I don't know that I've actually seen that sign at the football games in recent times either, which is interesting. It used to be at the AFL. It used to be at the AFL. At the AFL. No. There's the NFL. No. That's right, yeah. Anyway, if you have your Bibles handy... We'll get into John chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When we were here a couple of weeks ago, we began looking at how this verse ties into the first part of chapter 3. As a reminder, John 3 begins with Jesus telling Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again. It's not optional, it's a necessity. Being born again, born from above, born of God. This new birth, theological term regeneration, is a work entirely of God. It's not something we can do. We can't born ourselves again. But regeneration gives us a new heart, a new beginning and a new father. Now it's not in our human nature to seek after God, for no one seeks after God, Paul told the Romans in chapter 3. It sounds nonsensical, but we were all born dead. We were born dead. Dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1. We were separated from Christ, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were by nature children of wrath. That's why we need to be born again of a different father. Now that all sounds like bad news, and it is. But you're sitting here thinking, I thought the gospel was good news, not bad news. Well, yes, the gospel is good news. It's the best news. Because when we're born again, all that bad stuff, all that alienation, all that death, all that stranger of the covenant from the covenant of promise is taken away. And the heart that previously refused to even look for God now finds Christ to be the most precious treasure, the most desirable, the most beautiful gift of all. Regeneration, being born again, causes causes us to look to the cross and to believe. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world in order that the world, uh, in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The motivation that lay behind God offering up his only son to be crucified was that God so loved the world. He loved the world intensely, And he demonstrated his love in the cross. As strange as it may sound to our ears, the cross is the perfect solution to our problem. The cross is the means, the only means, by which God could punish sin and at the same time extend mercy to us sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We looked recently at what John meant when he said, God so loved. We concluded, so means that God loved with intensity, with an infinite amount of love. God loved the world so much. We also recognise that means that God demonstrated his love by sending his son to die in our place. God loved the world 
in this way. The Bible talks about God loving his people as a mother loves and cares for her baby. He has inscribed you on the palm of his hands, it tells us in Isaiah 49. There's a gentleness, an intimacy, a tenderness to God's love that far surpasses that available in any human love. But there's also an unrelenting fierceness to God's love. God will not allow anyone to escape unpunished who brings harm to his chosen ones. Beloved, never avenge yourself, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. One thing that God's love is not is wishy-washy or sloppy. There's a song that got a fair bit of use in Christian churches not so long ago and a couple of the lines go, So heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. Don't fall into the trap of imagining that God's love is some sort of romantic love like a teenage boy who has a crush on a girl at school. Too many Christians are looking for a giddy high of romantic love. They're seeking an emotional response, a feeling as confirmation of God's love for them and as evidence of the reality of their faith. If I feel loved, then I know I must be loved. I think that's why some Christians seem almost bipolar in their faith. They soar into the heavens with love for God one day and plunge into the depths of doubt and despair the next. When they're on on a high, they're singing the loudest in church. When they're on a low, they don't even come to church. Faith like that is built on emotion, not built on truth. Faith like that is too shallow to survive the trials the opposition, the persecution and even the death that Jesus promises to his followers. Jesus promised us opposition, persecution and death. Faith built on emotion cannot survive in in the face of that. And worse still, faith built on emotion is probably too shallow to save. I don't know about you, but I find a sloppy, wet kiss from God an unappealing thought. Sloppy, wet kisses are what teenage boys do when they're exploring their first love. It's what your big, buffy Labrador does when you get home from work. Plants a sloppy, wet kiss on your face. But believe me, a sloppy, wet kiss is not what you want from God. What you want, whether you know it or not, what you need is a love that's founded on the unchanging nature of God and anchored in a historical event, the cross. Now, I don't mean to suggest by this that God is emotionless. The Bible tells us that the Father gets angry. Jesus wept. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. God is not without emotions, as the old writers used to put it, without passions. But God is not controlled by emotion like we are. 
His love is unchanging. His love is stable. Love is his nature. God is love. But love is also his choice. His love never increases or decreases according to his moods. That's important for us to understand. God's love is unchanging just as he is unchanging. When God sets his love on someone, they are loved. And not only are they loved, they stay loved. Whether you feel it or not, when God sets his love on you, you are loved and you stay loved. If more married couples understood that love is a choice and a conviction, that love is something you do and continue to do, I think less marriages would fall apart because I've just fallen out of love with him. A friend of ours divorced her husband because she's fallen out of love with him. He says he was the best husband, the best father you could imagine, but I've fallen out of love with him. Love is not an emotion. Love, an emotion comes out of love. Love is what you do, and love is what God does as part, because it's his nature. That sort of shallow, emotion-driven faith, I think, is why some people can't reconcile God's love with God's justice and his wrath. Love is God's nature, but wrath isn't his nature. Wrath is the way God responds to sin. God is love, but God isn't wrath. In future messages, we'll get to why, if God is love, not love, not everybody gets saved. But briefly, love doesn't mean that sin is ignored. In fact, love, genuine love, must confront sin, must deal with sin, and must punish sin. If you're not convinced that that's true, imagine for a moment, parents, you'll be able to imagine this, imagine that someone is abusing your child. Will you, in the name of love towards the offender, who may even be a family member, will you in the name of love turn a blind eye to the abuse? Or will your love rain down wrath on the offender? Even if the offender is a family member. The answer is obvious to any father or mother. Love is not exclusive of justice and punishment. Love and wrath are not enemies. In fact, they go hand in hand. For genuine love will not tolerate anything less than the best for the person loved. Sin is not the best. Sin corrupts, spoils, defiles the person that's loved. And in fact... It's not just love for the child, it's love for the offender to expose the sin, to punish the sin, to rain down wrath. It's why we have jails, because sin must be punished. We want sin to be punished, and love insists that sin is punished, because sin spoils, destroys God's love cannot 
tolerate sin. It is relentlessly opposed to sin. It's why the cross was necessary. Now, I don't want to, by all that, downplay the truth of the intimacy with our relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the one who saves us in the first place. He is the one who now dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. Proverbs 18.24 tells us, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That friend is Jesus Christ. That's the sort of intimacy that we have with this God. But I'm convinced we Christians need less emotion, less sloppy sentimentality about God's love. Not to say emotions are bad, but we need less of that emotion-driven faith and more reverence, more wonder, maybe even sometimes a healthy fear of God. Remember John, our author, has spent spent three years walking with Jesus, listening to Jesus, leaning on Jesus' chest. John knew him better than anyone, probably. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. John knew firsthand the love of God. There may be no one in human history who's been more intimately connected with Jesus than John was. And yet, when John wrote the book of Revelation, his first view of Jesus knocked him flat to the ground. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, John wrote in Revelation chapter 1, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When was the last time your thoughts of Jesus almost struck you dead in awe and wonder? We have an intimate relationship with this Jesus, but he is a terrifying Jesus at the same time. If John fell at his feet as though dead, why don't we? John 3.16 tells us that Jesus didn't come the first time to condemn the world, but the Bible also tells us that Jesus is returning one day as judge of the world. Those who haven't put their trust in him will be condemned. Verse 17 makes that abundantly clear. Those who have put their trust in him, though, will still be judged, but their works will be judged and rewarded accordingly. But they won't be cast out. But this is not, not a God that we dare to toy with. He is fierce, He is powerful, he is righteous, he is holy, and he is even terrifying. And that's exactly what God's love is like. Real love is fierce and righteous and powerful. It's not sloppy. It's not sentimental. When God created the world, and when God created humankind... He looked at his creation and and declared it is very good. And it was very good. There was no death. There was no decay. There was no sin. But the world we live in today is a mess. It's been that way since Adam rebelled against God in the garden. Adam's firstborn son murdered his own brother in a fit of jealousy and anger. And it's been more of the same in every succeeding generation. In fact, 
wasn't very many generations from Adam when it tells us in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind had become great on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all the time. Unrelenting evil. Things haven't improved, in case you haven't noticed. In spite of all the so-called advances in knowledge, communication, education, systems of government, social services and everything else, humankind is no less wicked than it was back then. In fact, it could be argued that humankind is much more wicked than it was in Noah's day. We've invented more ingenious ways of being cruel to each other and more inventive ways to rebel against God. But this is precisely the world that John tells us God so loved. Now, not every time that John refers to the world in his gospel does he mean the wicked, rebellious humanity. That seems to be the most common way he refers to it. He actually uses it in a number of different ways. And it's used in a number of different ways in the rest of the New Testament too. I think it's probably worthwhile having a quick look at the different ways that John uses the term the world, if it, even if it's only for your own reading and understanding of the Bible. The, word, the term translated as the world is a Greek word cosmos, spelt with a K. You'd be familiar with the word cosmos. John uses it about 50 times in this gospel and a number of times in his letters as well. In fact, he uses it three times in one verse with at least two different meanings in that one verse. John 1.10 tells us he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So how are the different ways he uses this? The first one, of course, is he uses to refer to the planet Earth. He was in the world and the world, planet Earth, was made through him. John 21.25 tells us, I suppose that the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written about all of Jesus' miracles. John also uses it to refer to the human race generally. Same verse, he was in the world, he was in the human race. And the world was made through him, yet the world, the human race, did not know him. John uses it to refer to mankind as sinners alienated from God. John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, sinful humanity, and people, the world, love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. He uses it to refer to mankind as sinners alienated from God, but without any distinction of race or nationality. John 29 says, I, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sinful humanity from every tribe, tongue, language and nation. I have come into the world, John 12:46, as light so that whoever believes, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He uses it to refer to the general public. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly, Jesus' brothers told him. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. 
And uh, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world, to the general public? John also used it to refer to the created realm, the universe. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world was created. That's all of creation. And finally, he uses it to refer to the realm of evil. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. John Stott, the author and theologian, makes the point that God's love is and always was indiscriminate, embracing every man, woman and child. And the object of his love is the world, which John consistently, almost entirely, sees as fallen and organised in rebellion against God. Almost without exception, world has negative overtones in John's writing. It is the world organised to rebel against God's rule and his claim on their life. So the question is, how is John using the world here in John 3.16? Now we know that God was impressed with the perfection of his creation and you don't have to travel very much to see some stunning sights. Just here in Australia, you can have, go to Ayers Rock, the Great Barrier Reef, the Coorong, Daintree Forest, the Kimberley, all so different, but all stunningly beautiful. And that's to say nothing of the sights in the rest of the world. Creation truly is amazing and beautiful, magnificent. But you know, God didn't give his son to save the planet. He didn't give his son to save the animals. He gave his son to save people, sinful rebellious people he gave his son to save a mankind that was alienated from him if man was good if man was able to save himself there'd be no need for God to give his son for their salvation I think it's reasonable for us to conclude that John is saying that God so loved the human race alienated from God by their sin but without any distinction of race, religion, ancestry, nationality. God loved all of sinful humanity. So if my conclusion is correct, then John is actually magnifying the grace and the mercy of God here. John is telling us that mankind hates God, rejects him, rebels against him. John is telling us there is nothing lovable about mankind. We are mired in sin and filth and rebellion. And yet, God chooses to set his love on us. There's nothing sloppy or emotional about God's love for the world. God is not attracted to us because we're pretty or cool or rich or principled and honourable. None of those things, the things that might cause us to be attracted to another person, none of those things apply to God's love for us. God knew how unattractive we would be 
before he even created us. He knew our sin, he knew our rebellion before the foundation of the earth. Which just makes us wonder at the grace and the love that he extends to us. It's only when we recognise the ugliness of our sin and our lostness before God that we can truly appreciate the beauty of God's grace. The greater the contrast, the more his grace stands out. So each of us should give thanks to God. Each and every one of us was part of that lost, rebellious world before he sent his son to die for it, before he performed the miracle of new birth in us, before he caused us to look to Christ for salvation. That's enough for today. Next week we'll come back and look at what it means that God gave and gave his only son. So what should it mean to us that God's love is not sloppy but fierce? Have you fallen into the trap of measuring your level of faith by the emotional high you get when you worship God? Or the related trap of doubting God's love because you don't feel loved? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. That's no way to live the Christian life. If that describes you, then you need to decide now, once and for all, that you'll trust in God's word not your emotions because his word says that his love is never taken away from you assuming of course that you put your trust in him in the first place Hebrews 13.5 says for he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you Romans 8.38 and 39 I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. What is excluded from that list? Nothing. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stop looking inside for your confidence. Look to him who laid down his life to provide you with a salvation that is sure that will never fail. There was a cross. It was a real event in real human history. And there is a Bible that tells us infallibly about that event. That's where we need to be anchoring our faith. Paul wrote, I would remind you, brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand. You don't stand on feelings. You stand on gospel, truth, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. That was real. Christ died for our sins. It actually happened. He died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. The word said that would happen. The word has recorded the event. It's real. It's trustworthy that he was buried. 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That Bible you've got on your phones, the Bible you've got on the shelf at home, records truth. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. When that was written, people were still close enough to the events that they could refute that. They could have said, Paul, none of that happened. I was there and it didn't happen. No one refuted it. Because it's true. That's what we hang our faith on. Our confidence, our assurance. The cross and the resurrection of Christ is the best documented event in ancient history. The world won't tell you that. The world will tell you that it was all made up by people hundreds or thousands of years later. It is the best documented event in history. And even atheist historians will tell you that the writings of our New Testament date back to very, very close to the times of those events. Even the atheist historians will tell you that. It is that event that gives us assurance of our salvation, not our emotions. Our emotions are notoriously fickle and unstable. Each one of you knows that. Anchor your faith on a real event in real history and on the God who is responsible for it. But what does it mean to you that God is unchanging, that once he has set his love on you, you remain loved. We can confidently say, it also says in Hebrews 13, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or Romans 4, that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We can have complete confidence in the saving and the keeping power of our God, this God who so loved. Friends, I want you to put your hope, your faith, your confidence in another, not in yourself, in another, in one who has the power, the ability, the plan and the desire to save you and to save you to the uttermost. If you have never done that, if you have never put your trust in him, there is one who calls to you now, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. He is the one who came not to condemn the first time, but to save. The next time, though, He's coming as judge. The next time, he's coming to condemn. Next time, he won't be extending his love to you. If you haven't put your trust in him already, the next time will be too late. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait until you've tidied your life up before you turn to him, you know as well as I do that you can't do that. If you could do that, you would have done it already. You can't do that. God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the right time to turn to him, while you're still sinners. 
That's the only time you can turn to him while you're still sinners. Turn to him now. Look to him in faith. Look to him who was lifted up on that Roman cross for your salvation. Look to him and believe. And look to him who's coming again. Father, we thank you. Thank you that not just that you are love, but that you have set your love on us. We thank you, Father, that your love never changes. We thank you, Father, that we can anchor our faith in real events, in a real person, Jesus Christ, a real God, Jesus Christ, who never changes, who never leaves nor forsakes us, whose love for us never changes because his mood changes. Father, we thank you for those things, those truths we thank you for. We thank you that you've revealed those truths to us as well and not just left us wondering about it, but you've made it as clear as you can in your word or as clear as you choose to in your word. Clear enough that we can read, see, look to that cross, believe, be born again. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness, Father. Thank you for your Son sent to demonstrate your love for the world. Thank you that you've plucked us out of our sin, our rebellion, our filth and transferred us to the kingdom of your dear Son made the citizens of heaven. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, that you'll write these things on their heart, that they will be unshakable in their faith because their faith is on an unshakable rock. And Lord, if anyone should hear this and have not put their trust in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you'll, you will reveal the cross to them by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Let them see the Son of God lifted up on their behalf, bearing their sin, Lord, bearing their sin to the uttermost so that they could be forgiven, saved, a new heart, a new spirit put within them and a new father to love, to worship. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Thank you, Father, for your love. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.